Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Eastern European History. I'm your host, Leslie Waters, doing my first podcast for the New Books Network today. And my guest is Esther Varsha, author of the new book, Protected Children, Regulated Mothers, Gender and the Gypsy Question in State Care in Postwar Hungary, 1949 to 1956, published in 2021 by Central European University Press. Welcome to the podcast, Esther. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. So let me tell you a little about our author for today. Esther Varsha is a social historian with a PhD in comparative gender studies from Central European University in Budapest in 2011. She was Marie Sklodowska Curie Intra-European Research Fellow at the Leibniz Institute for East and Southeast European Studies in Regensburg and Romani Rose Fellow at the Research Center on Anti-Gypsyism at Heidelberg University's Department of History in 2020. Her major fields of research interest include the history of child protection, health and hygiene, reproductive politics, and Roma in 20th century Eastern Europe. Her articles have appeared in Nationalities Papers, East European Politics and Societies, Aspasia, and the History of the Family, where she co-edited a special issue in 2021 on reproductive politics and sex education in Cold War Europe. Currently, Dr. Varsha is a postdoctoral researcher in the ERC project ZARA, Women's Labor Activism in Eastern Europe and Transnationally, from the Age of Empires to the Late 20th Century at Central European University in Vienna. So, uh, Esther, Can we perhaps start uh, with you explaining to our listeners how you got interested in the topic of child protection? Sure. Um, Let me first just say what child protection is about. It covers measures and services for children uh, considered endangered, such as placement in a temporary home or with foster parents or in a children's home all of these services replacing or substituting the care provided by parents. And um, how I got interested in the history of these institutions 
and especially children's homes during state socialism in Hungary, was that I had a group of friends um, who all grew up in such homes in Hungary in the 1970s and the 1980s. And um, we, when we were together, and this was um, already in the early 2000s, they have always brought up some of their memories from those times. And, and the stories they have told were very mixed. So some of them were um, bad memories about uh, the lack of sufficient food or some fights um, they had there with others. But other stories were more like positive memories about um, their connection to former teachers they liked very much and had an almost parent-like relationship to them um, up to the present time. And um, we have also visited together um, some of these homes, and um, these were actually large castles with huge gardens and old rooms that fascinated me. And um, I was wondering how it might have been uh, growing up in such a place. Um, at the same time, um, by the systemic changes of 1989 and afterwards, the image of the state socialist history of child protection, including these large children's homes, as well as the treatment of Roma in this period, was very negative. Um, and... Um, I must say here um, that my friends were Roma and um, I experienced some of their struggles with this identity um, in the early 2000s that was mixed with efforts to connect with Roma um, and Romani culture, as well as struggle with discriminatory experiences from mainstream society who defined them as, quote, gypsies. Um, and so to turn back um, to, to these institutions, they were very much decried and criticized from both within and outside the profession um, in the early 1990s, late eight, 1980s already, as, as, as harmful. And um, this also embedded the acknowledgement of the overrepresentation of Romani children in state care um, by the 1980s and the critical evaluation of the state politics toward Roma during state socialism. And um, my motivation to work on this project, on this book, was born out of a wish to re-examine this negative image of child protection under state socialism, mm -hmm. and also for the most decried years of the Rákosi regime in Hungary between the late 1940s and the early 1950s. And I was wondering if there could be other answers to the question how state care was transformed and how it functioned in Stalinist Hungary than those resulting out of a focus on political repression. Um, the, the historiography of Stalinism has long been dominated by such, such accounts that emphasize political repression um, and, and these accounts affected the perception of the functioning of all areas of life during those times, including welfare services or including child protection services. And in my account in this book, I emphasize rather the ambiguity of state-provided welfare services, which included both the provision of help and support 
and elements of regulation and control these services embedded. And in this respect, these services in state socialist Hungary um, were not different from, from similar services elsewhere in Europe um, um, that were characterized by, by this ambiguity. Excellent. So yes, it sounds like your experiences among your friend group and what you were sort of hearing in the broader discourse didn't always match up. And so your historical research in some ways tries to understand where these ambiguities come from, perhaps. Exactly. Yeah. And so, sorry, and, go ahead. Oh, I just wanted to add the sentence that um, to, to provide a more complex account of, of, of these times and these histories um, instead of a black and white um, image. Absolutely. So um, that's perhaps a good place to start as well, this uh, broader historical context of early state socialist Hungary, and uh, if you could situate child protection within it for the, our listeners. Yes, uh, one of the main arguments of the book is that child protection was predominantly affected by social problems of a post-war society rather than political repression. So I situate child protection in the late 1940s and the first half of the 1950s uh, sorry, in Hungary in the context of a post-war society that also went through turbulent political changes in a very short time. So one of the things I show in this book is that while a minority of children ended up in children's homes due to the political purges at the time, the majority of children's case files revealed diverse social and economic hardships parents were struggling with. In the late 1940s and in the early 1950s, Hungary was a country that was deeply shaped by the effects of World War II. Um, um, so following Poland and the Soviet Union, it was Hungary that lost the largest proportion of its pre-war population. Um, yeah, I remember a statistic, yeah. 9% of the population. Exactly, yeah. That's incredible. So the losses in Hungary were approximately um, um, similar to the losses of, of Germany, actually. And Hungary lost its basic industries um, and infrastructure. Um, um, and this was all topped with high rates of inflation, unemployment. Um, and in the first half of the 1950s, um, still between 65 and 75% of the population uh, could be considered poor. So I argue that most children ended up in state care because of their parents could either not provide for them or were busy at work and could not provide appropriate care for, for their children. Thank you. Um, so on the, yeah. uh, in your introduction, you say that one of the aims of your work is to explore child protection and state care beyond the one-dimensional black and white images of victimized children and brutal institutions projected against the unproblematic dichotomy of a Soviet-style dictatorial state and oppressed and passive society. And this is, I would think, in part a matter of sources. 
So can you tell us a bit about what sources and methodologies you use to highlight individual agency and the ways in which people negotiated with the state in the context of child protection? Um, sure. Um, I used um, a variety of sources. Um, and I must say that um, these negotiations took place at different levels of the child protection system. So not only between parents and institutions or representatives of these institutions, but but among different state institutions, including different ministries that were responsible for the field of child protection and residential care, between residential home directors, or between these directors of these homes and the ministries, and also between um, directors of homes and parents, or even, um, I even uh, came across um, a letter by a child that was addressing authorities directly because she was suffering so much um, um, at her foster family. Um, So a variety of written and oral sources could be used to detect these negotiation processes. Um, And I used um, documents related to the institutions, like minutes of council meetings on child protection-related matters at um, county and municipal councils. Uh, I also came across the documents of a former director of um, an institution, uh, it was the former director of the Child Protection Institution of Budapest Pest County in the 50s and 60s, which was a rich documentation and included also letters and, mm-hmm. and, and reports that she has written about the situation in her home um, and letters she has addressed to respective ministries about mm, problems she had. And this was not a unique case, this... Um, this um, characterized other institutions, institutional practices in in Hungary. A very significant part of the the sources that I used um, were children's case files. I I collected over 600 case files from three different um, institutions, child protection institutions in different parts of the country. One of them from the capital city, um, another one located in an agriculture area, and um, the third institution located in in northeast Hungary, um, a county that I had chosen because it had, by the 1950s, uh, already a documented history of addressing the so-called, quote, gypsy question, unquote. Um, and I could detect among the case files also um, Romani children. Um, these case files provided rather uneven information about the children. Um, besides the standardized forms, um, there were in some of these children's case files also additional documents that could be used to, um, to reveal these negotiation processes. So, for example, recommendations for placement by the police or a physician or a school director. Um, As I have mentioned, there were some letters uh, 
not only by this particular child that I have mentioned, but there were some letters there by parents uh, inquiring about the whereabouts of their their children uh, mm, mm-hmm. or requests um, um, written to child protection authorities um, um, by parents to have their children returned home. Um, so I know you also did interviews, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I just wanted to turn to these interviews. Perfect. <laughs> oh, no, no problem. Um, um, I I used interviews. Some of them um, I, I conducted myself. Others were um, available from other sources, um, and. Um, these also revealed how parents were using the child protection system to secure care for their children. So um, some of the um, the interviews um, that I conducted with former residents of these homes um, told me how they um, ended up in these homes. And um, from these interviews, as well as from the other documents that I had mentioned, it was um, all, it also became clear that uh, parents were actually also using these homes to secure care for their children at times when they could not do that in any other way themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were a minority of cases among the files of children I examined, around 5 to 6%, who were admitted to state care as a result of um, their parents' request. Um, they turned directly to authorities or to homes asking for such um, support. Um, in some other cases, um, parents have left their children um, um, in a hospital after having given birth. So there were different ways of, of doing that. And this is a result of the fact that there isn't any other form of like uh, daycare or something similar uh, to look after children while the parents are are working? I mean, some parents were in desperate economic situation or without other relatives who could support them. Um, Mm -hmm. And and yes, there were also a group of parents who had difficulties securing daycare for the children while they were at work because they these um, services were either not available, services were inadequate in that sense that they could not provide care for all the children that would have needed such uh, care. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and or they were they had shorter hours so, so the parents had to go to work earlier and, or, and and when children were left alone, um, I mean now older children without care, they started doing other things, um, spend more time in the streets, and um, and authorities have um, then recognized or identified these children as as endangered. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it? <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, 
Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Mm-hmm. And have they connection themselves. All right. Um, I'd like to move on to talk about sort of the the dual setup of, of your book. So most of your chapters tackle an aspect of child protection and examine it both in terms of gender expectations and the treatment of Roma. So can you talk about why you chose to focus on these two elements and what you see as some of the important similarities and differences between the treatment of Roma and non-Roma citizens? Yeah. Um, In terms of gender, I was curious to find out to what extent state socialist policymaking regarding the equalization of women with men affected the life of children's homes and child protection practices. And um, what I found was that despite the increasing inclusion of women in the labor force and policies and propaganda aiming at such equalization, uh, children's education in residential care institutions between 49 and 56 was largely gender differentiated. So children's homes were gender segregated, and teachers and care providers, many of whom were educated in the interwar period, did not question the, the gender division of daily work tasks um, mm-hmm. that were assigned to children. Um, at the same time, I also detected that in some homes for boys that I had examined, um, it was actually the absence of female staff or other um, girls, students, I mean, um, that brought about a break with this traditional division, gender division of work tasks. Um, so this was not an ideological, based on an ideological concern about the need to restructure these relationships between men and women in society. But uh, this lack of um, female staff, for example, And in these homes, um, under the notion of self-sufficiency or education for life, teachers were um, telling boys to participate in tasks that counted um, traditionally as women's work, such as cleaning or repairing their clothes or participating in kitchen work. And as adults, um, interestingly, um, these former students, boy students, also rejected conventional ideas about gender-segregated roles in their homes. Um, So in my interviews, um, I was told by some of these former residents of the experiences they had when, or conflicts they had in their own families as adults, um, where they did not understand these gender division work of work. Mm. Um, Yeah, or went against them. Um, Turning to to Roma, I was interested to find out what were at the roots of the overrepresentation of Romani children in state care, which was affected by the 1980s. And I wanted to look at the early state socialist period when the setting up of large children's homes um, became part of the child protection policy to see if I can find out how these um, processes started. and um, and and just 
As in case of child protection, um, also state politics concerning Roma in state socialist Hungary cannot be understood without a long-term and transnational perspective. So um, what I found was that preconceptions about the workshops of persons considered to be, quote, gypsy, that were manifest in policy recommendations and local-level practices um, in the early 1950s in Hungary, did not originate from these times, nor was the placement of Romani children into state care a state socialist invention. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the major findings of the book is that um, child protection and efforts to solve the so-called gypsy question in Hungary had a centuries-long common history. So providing proper care and a civilized upbringing to Romani children by removing them from the care of their parents had been on the agenda of local authorities in Hungary and elsewhere in Europe since the emergence of the modern state. Um, These efforts were intensified in Hungary by the establishment of a state child protection system at the turn of the 19th and 20th centuries. And so authorities in state socialist Hungary could thus build on a long-standing link between state care and the so-called quote, solution to the gypsy question. Um, I would also like to add that caseworkers, I mean in the child protection system, their evaluation of good and bad parenting affected Romani and non-Romani parents differently. And the intersectional analysis um, that I have undertaken in this book um, points to the existence of prejudices concerning the work shyness of parents whom caseworkers identified as, quote, gypsies. Mm-hmm. So this meant that when mothers were accused of bad parenting because of not having a job, Romani mothers were likely to be accused of work shyness as well. So Romani mothers were held responsible for raising productive members of state socialist society and caseworkers and other representatives of the child protection system regarded the proper shaping of Romani mothers' parenting habits as a significant step towards the disappearance of work shyness among Roma and thus the successful assimilation of Roma into Hungarian society. Great. Thank you so much. Uh, I'd like to move on and uh, talk a bit about your second chapter now, which is about the relationship between child protection and women's participation in the labor force. And you note that placing children in state institutions was a means of mediating the tension between women's productive and reproductive responsibilities. So can you explain a little bit more about this? Yes, um, we have just addressed um, this um, a minute ago. Um, that um, at a time when there was an increasing number of women entering paid work in the framework of state socialist industrialization, the socialization of care work was um, not adequate. Mm -hmm. Um, And and so um, the existing um, child protection network that um, state socialist authorities inherited from um, from the past uh, was used to to, start, to substitute um, for missing public child care services. Of course, these services were not the same um, and child protection included um, 
um, much um, more characteristically um, regulatory efforts um, by the fact that that um, child removal could be used to to regulate uh, parental behavior. Um, but to go back to this uh, to the mediation of um, um, yeah productive and reproductive yes responsibility um, um, caseworkers um, who were active in facilitating the employment of mothers actually viewed children as hindering women from fulfilling this expectation so um they used the institution of child protection to enable women's entrance to paid work, as well as to push pressure, put to, to, to push women and, and put pressure on them to, to do so. Um, and um, on the other hand, unemployment was evaluated negatively. And um, here placement in state care um, could also serve the, the purposes of pressuring women to, to find a job. Um, and, um, and, and caseworkers were also influenced by prejudices that I have just mentioned against um, Roma, whom they, they considered work shy. Yeah, I think this is an interesting place in which, you know, going back to this setting of post-war Hungary, post-Second World War Hungary, that it's very interesting that the state has these two, in some ways, conflicting goals, right? Women need to have children uh, to build the population of the state, which has suffered during the war, uh, but they also need them to enter the labor force. And, and these, this is, as you, as you put it in the book, right, an inherent tension. And you can imagine the different, uh, the different, like uh, different parts of the state, different agencies of the state having uh, different sorts of solutions to this tension potentially. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, one of the things that your book does really well is balance this kind of quantitative research in a sense with a lot of very interesting case studies. So in the third chapter, you introduce your readers to a woman named Eva, whose adoptive daughter was taken to a child protective institution. And I think this is one of the more um, fascinating cases that you talk about in the book. So can you tell us about her and, and why you find her case so significant? Yeah, um, um, this chapter is actually about how child protection as an institution regulated women's sexuality. Um, so um, child protection not, was, was not only used to, to put pressure on women to enter paid work, um, but also um, to regulate the sexual behavior of, um, of single young girls, as well as mothers, especially lone mothers. And so I show, show in this chapter um, that caseworkers... Um, um, use the child protection system to put pressure on mothers, um, lone mothers or single mothers to, to get married um, and, conf- and, and um, adapt 
to the expectation of, of good motherhood in, in this respect. Um, and also, um, they used placement in state care in the case of young girls who were labeled as, as transgressing the acceptable limits of sexual morality to, um, to curb their sexual activity. Uh, so the case of Eva and her actually adoptive daughter um, at the beginning of this chapter demonstrates the, the pressure that the institution of child protection was able to exercise on lone mothers because Eva was a lone mother to marry, um, charging them with sexual immorality and questioning their capacity to raise their children properly. Um, Eva was accused of being an immoral mother, um, um, actually um, was um, accused um, of leaving from occasional prostitution. And this was the, the ground for um, taking her daughter away from her and putting her in, in state care. And um, I could detect in the files um, how Eva made numerous efforts and addressed authorities at different levels of the child protection hierarchy, actually going um, up to the highest level possible um, to reclaim her daughter. So she even wrote a letter to um, the office of Rakoshi. Um, but she was unable to change um, the judgment of caseworkers and, and authorities about her being an immoral mother, a bad mother. And um, so what is also significant here is uh, that we cannot actually establish on the basis of these documents whether the placement of Eva's daughter in state care was justified or not. Um, mm -hmm. Nor can it be verified whether Eva really lived from occasional prostitution or had instead only jealous neighbors uh, who had complained about her. Um, as Patricia Hill Collins has written, considering uh, concerning the control of African-American women's sexuality in the United States, factual reality mattered less than the ability of women to socially construct themselves as virtuous. Mm -hmm. So Eva lost in her attempts against local and county-level guardianship authorities to establish that she was a good mother. Her daughter's removal was her punishment for her perceived sexual immorality. Um, yeah, and um, through such sexual regulation, representatives of the child protection system conveyed an, a, quite an explicit message to women about the limits of good and bad motherhood. Absolutely. Um, I might also add that these standards also apply to Romani women. Mm -hmm. um, but some Roma women were likely to face child protection authorities' negative evaluation concerning their lifestyle and sexual morality. Um, so among some Romani communities, for example, such as the Lovara in northeastern Hungary, um, it was custom to move in with a man um, um, without um, official without going to the registry office to make this official. Um, um, this was considered as a marriage, um, counted as a marriage um, in their communities. 
but such women counted um, as unmarried mothers um, for authorities and were likely to to meet criticism or or negative evaluation um, on behalf of of also child protection caseworkers. Mm-hmm. So, if we move to the later chapters of your book. Uh, you really shift your focus more onto the child protection residential institutions. And you talk about the ways that social workers and teachers hope to instill certain values on the children under their care. So we talked a little bit about kind of the gendered expectations, um, but can you describe some of these other values and what they were and, and the pedagogical strategies they used to impart them? Yeah, in this chapter, I present um, the so-called education for work, um, which was a concept that guided the education of children in state care in the time period that I have examined. Um, I discussed the processes of creating self-disciplinary work practices in residential homes, um, the daily routine of institutional life, the evaluation of work tasks into a matter of honor and positive reinforcement that were intended to create the habit of work in children. Um, um, these habits of work were gender segregated, as I have discussed earlier. Um, and what was interesting was that while there was an effort um, to introduce this education for work um, in regular primary school education at the time, this this was unsuccessful, but not in um, in children's homes or in the field of child protection. And in this chapter, I reflect on how a mixture of reformatory um, pedagogy and reform pedagogy um, were responsible for this difference and for the fact that education for work remained so important um, in the life of residential homes. Um, Besides education in gendered patterns of work, children's homes also had a mission of racial ethnic assimilation in relation to Roma. Mm-hmm. Authorities in state socialist Hungary inherited a centuries-long idea and practice in which Romani children's removal from their families was seen as a means to assimilate all Roma into Hungarian society. Um, children's homes were to inscribe habits of work into their inhabitants and um, thereby contribute to the elimination of work shyness among Roma, which was perceived as the main obstacle to their assimilation. Yeah, it was impossible to read this chapter without thinking about the current um, the current situation in Canada with residential schools and, in, and the indigenous population. So it's interesting to see in this in the state socialist context a, a sort of similar objective with residential schools of assimilating a population. Yeah, these um, international um, parallels or or cases um, were important also for my research. Um, so we can look at um, the cases of. Um, Aboriginal children in Australia or the indigenous population in um, of the United States or, or Canada and how they have been handled um, by authorities um, 
the infamous removal of children from their parents into boarding schools and right. other um, even more atrocious um, cases. Um, yeah, so yeah. I, I wanted to yeah. look at the... So your fourth chapter is sort of a, a broad analysis of residential schools. And then in your final chapter, you focus on one uh, residential institution in particular, the Lhotse Infant Home in Budapest, which is somewhat infamous, in fact. So can you talk a little bit about what's significant about this particular institution and how it's connected actually to uh, to the Stalinist purges in, in Hungary in the late 1940s? Yeah, this chapter addresses the controversy around um, this infant home in Budapest and its founder and lifelong director, Emmy Pickler. Pediatrician Emmy Pickler is actually an internationally known figure in the field of early childhood development. The Pickler method is a highly appreciated method of early childhood development centered on the free and independent development of children. Um, and I mean now of infants especially. Pickler has today followers in France, Germany, or the United States, and um, the international Pickler homes are all based on, on her methods. Um, today's international Pickler home in Budapest was the former Lotz infant home that Pickler founded based on these reform pedagogies in 1946. Um, so, but in contrast to all of this, um, in Hungary, Pickler's home was um, highly criticized um, and had a much more negative image um, um, already for, for several decades um, by the end of state socialism and also afterwards. And um, this was due to Pickler's connection to the political purges in the country that took place during the Rakoshi dictatorship in the late 40s and the early 50s. Um, because some of the children of parents who were imprisoned and parents who were even executed were placed in this infant home. What I argue in that chapter that um, it was one of the unintended consequences of the Stalinist political purges rather than the particular methodology of infant care developed along um, progressive and socialist educational per, uh, principles that this child protection institution became an object of criticism and a negative symbol of the communist regime in Hungary. Um, um, and this criticism actually eventually contributed to the closing of the infant home. So um, the infant home part of the institution, it operates today as, um, as, a, as one of those um, pickler homes. So it's not anymore a residential home in that sense as in the past. But this controversy is what I what I explore in that chapter, and um, I do uh, focus on on aspects of Emmy Pickler's professional career that are uh, have been rather undiscussed or or marginalized in the Hungarian context, uh, such as her um, her Jewish background as well as her 
commitment as a communist um, to certain values that have influenced her pedagogy and her her practice um, child, um, of early child um, development um, in this home that are often left forgotten. Great, thank you. So we've taken up quite a bit of your time today, uh, but I do have two sort of final questions for you. And uh, first is, are there some recent books in Hungarian or East European studies that you would recommend to our listeners? Definitely. Um, in the field of the history of Roma in Eastern Europe, I would certainly recommend Celia Donert's um, recent book entitled The Rights of the Roma, The Struggle for Citizenship in Postwar Czechoslovakia that was published by Cambridge University Press in 2017. Um, I would also recommend the very freshly published Rutledge Handbook of Gender in Central Eastern Europe and Eurasia. Mm-hmm. that has just came out. Um, yeah, these were the two books that um, I sought to recommend. Fantastic. Thank you. And then finally, what are some of the projects that you're currently working on? What can we expect from you next? Um, as you have mentioned in the introduction, I am now a postdoctoral researcher in the ERC project ZARA, Women's Labor Activism in Eastern Europe and Transnationally from the age of empires to the late 20th century, which is um, based at Central European University in Vienna. And and, and this project explores the history of women's labor activism and organizing to improve labor conditions and life circumstances of lower and working class women and their communities. So the project moves these women from the margins of labor, gender, and European history to the center of historical study. And um, so this is what I'm currently um, involved in. Um, My component study um, addresses women agricultural workers in Hungary between the late 19th century and the 1930s and their efforts to improve their circumstances of living and their conditions of work. Um, So this is what I am actually involved in. Great. Thank you so much. All right. Well, uh, this has been Esther Varsha talking to me today, and her book is Protected Children, Regulated Mothers, Gender, and the Gypsy Question in State Care in Postwar Hungary, 1949 to 1946. So thank you so much, Esther. Thank you for the interview. Yes, thank you. And this has been the New Books Network in Eastern European Studies, and I'm Leslie Waters. Until next time.